Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're in the book of Matthew, and uh, we've been looking. I like to think of the first four books of uh, the New Testament as the documentaries about the life of Jesus. If there was a film crew following him around, and they didn't have film, they had notepads, this is what we would get. So um, Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to need one. So uh, put your hand up in the air, and we'll have some guys coming down with Bibles uh, in theory. So we got some people over here. If we can do that, that would be great to get them a Bible. They might have to share with their neighbors. But um, yeah, if we could get some help on that, that would be awesome. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14 um, this evening. And we have quite a long text to get through, but I promise you it's going to be worth it, all right? So Matthew 9, 14. It says this, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, well, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear even worse. Verse 17, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Gosh. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I could touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Verse 23, when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away. This girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. There's a phrase that's being tossed around within um, our society, and that's the phrase disruptor. Have you guys heard this before of disruptors? People who enter into an industry and entirely change the way that industry functions. 
Um, and you know these people. Here's uh, Travis Kalanick. He's the guy who started Uber, the ex-CEO. And uh, he basically turned ride-sharing into a multi-billion dollar industry. Unbelievable. Here's uh, Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb. Some of your bosses, some of you who work at Airbnb, this is your boss. Uh, founded Airbnb and entirely changed the way we think about lodging and staying in places. My wife and I, we like never get a hotel. It's always an Airbnb from this point forward. Right. Now, um, how did they go about doing this? They saw that there was a new group of people with new values that were coming, and coming to the surface and growing up, and they capitalized on the new market. They had eyes for the new thing. And now they're worth billions of dollars. Now, how many of you guys know it would be very foolish for you to go start a taxi company today? <laughs> Not a good idea. Because the new thing is here. And it's so powerful, things will never go back to the way that they were. It has changed the game forever. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a story like this, I think, man, Jesus was the very first disruptor. He was the OG. <laughs> you see, Jesus is approached by John's disciples, and he's asked this question about fasting. Now, I don't have time to go into fasting tonight. We have other teachings on fasting. You can check them out online. But these disciples of John use fasting as a way of questioning the validity of Jesus' movement. They're questioning the validity of Jesus' followers. Are these guys for real? Are you for real? And doesn't it rub you the wrong way? I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I'm like, what the heck, who are they? Who do they think they are questioning Jesus like this? And that's because what we're getting a taste of in this text is the religious spirit. You know situations like this. You know what it feels like when you get around somebody who has that religious spirit, you're just like, Oh, gosh, really? When I was 22 and I first started working here at the church, I was John Mark's assistant, and uh, I'm working through it. I'm gonna, there's enough sozos and counseling could actually, I think, bring me back to normal from that experience, but for a year, <laughs> I was his assistant, and it was my job to answer his emails, and so actually I'd get all the emails, that guy gets a lot of emails. All the emails come in, <clears throat> And uh, I, would, I would, you know, go to him and he, I'd, he'd read through them and then he would record on a little recorder his responses to him and then I'd plug the headphones in and go to a corner and I'd type out his responses, <clears throat> pre-Siri. And uh, <laughs> Siri was gunning for my job, I had to get out of there. And I'll never forget it, you know, this is, this is where we were six years ago, guys. Six years ago, John Mark didn't have an Instagram or a Twitter, all right? And he was just an egg. He was just an egg on Twitter, that was it, no photo. But he began to say, you know, I think this Twitter thing's gonna work out, well, how about we, you know, build this thing and then I'll use it. <clears throat> and in his bio, you know, you get a little bio. In his bio, it said, Pastor, Husband, Father, John Mark Comer. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty cool, that sums up pretty much what he does. But I got this email one day, and it was this lady who said, listen, I think it's pretty messed up that John Mark would put pastor before husband and father. <laughs> I'm like, pump the brakes, all right? <clears throat> you can't say it all at once, it's all in there. You satisfied, right? 
And that's the religious spirit. It's I'm gonna point something out in your life or I'm gonna show you something about my life that gets me some kind of moral or spiritual leg up. And I love Jesus' response. What does he say to these religious followers of John? Verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they'll fast. He's like, listen, my disciples, they're gonna fast but I'm here right now, and now's not the time for it. Now's not the time to fast. I was just at a wedding last week. It was a great wedding. They had cheese and meat, and they had like a giant paella, like no joke, a huge paella with like seafood, and it was incredible. And you guys know, it would be weird for me to be like, oh, actually, I'm fasting. And like sit in a corner and just sip my water and be like, These people think life is so fun, but I really know what it's all about. You know, like, that's weird. That's not only weird, it's kind of rude, right? It's just not a time for that. It's a celebration. And this is what Jesus is saying. I'm here, the party's here. (laughs) He uses these two metaphors of wineskins and clothing to then answer metaphorically the new age that we're now in. Look down at your Bibles, verse 16. He says this, no one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, let's say that you get a hole in your sweater, And you go and you find some material, you're like, that looks kind of cool, I bet it will go with my sweater, and I'll patch the hole with that material. But, here's the catch, your sweater's been washed and that material hasn't been. And so when you sew it together, you know, you, you get it together, and you put it through the wash, the new material will actually shrink at a different rate than the old material will shrink. And it will make, it will pull on the threads and it will make the hole even bigger. And then he uses this metaphor of wineskins to drive home the point. This is a, this is a, a picture, next slide, of a, a kind of a medieval depiction of what one of these wineskins would have looked like. This is a guy carrying a wineskin. There's real, you can Google it, there's real photos of these wineskins, but they were so disgusting I couldn't show you. Did you guys know this? A wineskin is a literal hollowed out pig with like its head tied, like cinched together, and they put wine in it. It's messed up, guys, all right? (laughs) So this gets the point across just fine. And basically what he's saying is if you have an old wine skin that's hard and leather and it's been used a ton of times and it has cracks in it, when you put that new wine in there, that wine's going to ferment and it's going to bubble and the gases are going to make it expand and it's going to just blow that wine skin apart. Now what is he saying? Because these are metaphors somehow related to fasting and the validity of Jesus' movement. Well, basically here's what he's saying. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. He's saying this, new things don't fit in old frameworks. The new thing is here, it's not gonna fit in the old framework like you guys are functioning under. So what exactly does that have to do with fasting? Well, in context, the wineskin represents structures and beliefs and ways of thinking that are associated with the law of Moses. And the whole point of this passage is that things are very different with Jesus in comparison to John. See, here's what John's primary message was. He was an old covenant prophet. 
And so he's primarily working from and out of the law of Moses. His message is a baptism of repentance. Come and repent of what you've been doing, the wrongdoing that you've done, and get clean. You can get clean. And then his primary message is conviction about wrongdoing. And, and he did this. He called Israel on their sin. You know, he's the weird guy out in the wilderness with the, the camel's hair vest, which actually sounds like it would be kind of cool to wear today. But he's out there and he's preaching against Israel. Repent of your sins. And he's ascetic. They're fasting. But Jesus is very different. This is, this is what Jesus represents. He represents the new covenant. He, he is bringing an entirely new age that we all get to enjoy right now. And he, he's not a bab- it's not just a baptism of repentance. It actually says it's a baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit. Wow. His primary message is conviction of a good thing. The kingdom is here. Yes, you've done wrong. Yes, you're a sinner. But I I'm not concerned with that. Here's my kingdom. It's for you. <clears throat> he has this almost too good to be true sort of thing going on. As one commentator put it, he's controlled by the joy of the kingdom. And so very simply, here's what this passage is saying to us. Jesus' message must take precedent over the message of the old covenant, and John knew this. John actually said, I must decrease, he must increase. He knew it. Things are not the way that they once were and we're not gonna be going back to that. And so then we see Jesus explains this but then he acts it out in the rest of the passage. That's why we read all of those stories. We're learning about the old wineskin and the new wineskin through each of these stories. Story one, here's what we learn. The law that kept that woman unclean and untouchable, it's now over. And the new wineskin is this. Faith in Jesus' power has a healing effect. Something new is here. I just, I, I don't know, I feel this is on my heart. If you're here and you've had chronic illness, you've had something in your body that hasn't been right for years, do not lose hope. You do not live in the old covenant, you live in the new. Don't lose hope. We also learn from this story that the old covenant was this, death is normal. It just happens. Sickness will happen, and the best that we can do is try to bring some sort of meaning out of it. But here's what we learn with Jesus. The new wine is this. It's healing. It's people rising from the dead. That's the new wine. Gosh, it's good. Second story, he said, we learn this. This is just awesome. The old wineskin is this. Hey, we have crazy people, and we don't really know what happens to them, but we think they're demonized, and so they're mute, and they can't speak, and all of that kind of stuff. And so we have special places where we take them or people that we try to get them to talk to because we don't have the capacity to deal with it. But how many of you guys know when you're in Christ, you get his capacity? And so now the new wineskin is we have authority instead of fear. So you actually, this is convicting to me. When you see the crazy person walking down the street, you don't need to cross to the other side of the street because you have authority. You walk with the peace of the kingdom and there's new wine that's flowing out of you and you're no longer part of the old covenant. But when we're confronted with the kingdom, just like these guys were in this story, there's really only two responses we can have this evening. Look down at your Bibles, verse 33. The first response is this, and when the demon was driven out and the man who had been mute spoke, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. This This is something totally new. But how many of you guys know there's another response? Verse 34, 
But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. It has been common all the way since the time of Jesus to attribute God's extravagance to the enemy. And the reason for that is because religion wants to control and God's extravagance can't be controlled and so we must truncate him down to a system or to only do things that we can have control over. Things that are too good are often chalked up to being from Satan and that's the religious spirit. See, it can be easy to miss the new thing when you have a religious spirit, so we, get, we gotta talk about it tonight. Matthew is super smart in putting this chapter together. Chapter nine is just amazing. The entire theme through the chapter is freedom, and we see this all the way from the beginning, verse one through eight. Here's what we see. We see freedom from sin. The paralytic gets brought to Jesus, and you could imagine the first thing on him, his mind is like, can you heal me? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And you, if you remember the story, there's some religious leaders who are basically like, whoa, whoa hang on a second. Who, you have the authority to forgive sins? Uh, no, right? But Jesus does, and he forgives sins. Why? Because he's God. The second story, the one that Gerald talked about last week, we get freedom from separatism. Matthew, who shouldn't be a part of the family of God, let alone the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, is welcomed into the family of God, and Jesus breaks it down. He says, I'm gonna eat with sinners and tax collectors, and I'm gonna be close with them too. And we get freedom from separatism. We don't need to behave like that anymore. And in our text, one commentator put it this way, we get freedom from scrupulosity. Isn't that fun to say, scrupulosity? Yeah, what the heck does that mean? I've never seen this word in my life, but as I read it in the commentary, I thought, oh, that's interesting, I'm gonna look that up. Well, um, this guy's name is uh, Bishop John Moore, and he lived in the 17th century. He was a church leader in England, and he was the first to coin this term. And, and here's what he said scrupulosity is. He says it's the fear that what people do is so defective and unfit that when they present themselves b- before God, he won't accept them. And so they, you live with this fear now. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but have you felt this? Here's what he said. He said this. In scrupulosity, a person's obsessions focus on the fear of being an evil person or the fear of divine retribution for sin. Not all obsessive compulsive behaviors related to religion are instances of scrupulosity. For example, scrupulosity is not present in people who repeat religious requirements merely to be sure that they were done properly, i.e. John's disciples, i.e. the fasting of the Pharisees. And I think this actually gets at the heart of what could keep us from making room for the new thing that God is doing. You see, fasting for John's disciples has become this sort of tell. It shows them who's in and who's out. And the fear of the Pharisees and John's disciples is that this guy, Jesus, is gaining a ton of popularity and he isn't having his disciples play by the same game. And it threatens them. True fasting, biblical fasting, is actually meant to express devotion to God's way, dependence on his provision, and recognition of your mortality in faith. And instead, it's become a religious exercise repeated over and over and over again to figure out who is in and who is out. That's how religion works. That's the religious spirit. 
Now specifically in this passage, the disciples of John are comparing themselves with the disciples of Jesus. And so we actually need to talk about comparison tonight because it's right there in the text and I think a lot of us deal with it. Flannery O'Connor has um, a book of short stories and one of the short stories in that book is called Revelation. And uh, in this short story called Revelation, there's a woman named Mrs. Turpin. And uh, Mrs. Turpin goes to a doctor's visit with her husband, and the entire story takes place inside the waiting room as she waits for her doctor's appointment. And as Mrs. Turpin begins to look around the room, she begins to size people up around her in comparison with herself. And when she walks into the room, she sees there's a spot on the couch that she could sit, but instead it's being taken up by a child in a dirty blue romper and a runny nose. And she thinks to herself, surely a good woman would make her child move over so that I could sit there. And as she scans the room the other direction, she sees the coffee table. And on the coffee table, there's a green ashtray full of cigarette butts and cotton swabs with blood on them. And she thinks to herself, if I had anything to do with the running of this place, I would make sure that that was cleaned out every so often. There's another young girl sitting in the waiting room who we find out is named Mary Grace. And she's reading a human development book because she goes to Wellesley. She's a college student. And the poor girl's face was covered in acne. And Mrs. Turpin thinks, oh, what a pity it would be to have acne like that at that age. And she thinks, you know, I may be fat, but I've always had good skin. (laughs) Next to the girl with acne, she sees a white trash sort of woman who the child in the dirty blue romper seems to belong to, and this woman wore a cotton print dress. And Mrs. Turpin recognized the pattern from a sack of chicken seed that she had at home, and she ponders about it. We get insight into her mind that sometimes in the evening as she's trying to fall asleep, she spends her time organizing the people that she knows in her life in different classes. And she says, you know, the bottom of society are renters, people who have to rent their home. And then the people above the renters are homeowners. And then the people above the homeowners are homeowners who have land, and that's where she and her husband fit. And then then above the homeowners with land, the very top are the people who are homeowners with big homes and lots of land. And she thinks to herself, if God gave me the choice to be a a big homeowner with lots of land, but I would be rude? No, I would rather just be a good woman in my class rather than a rude woman and have more. And isn't that convicting? Don't we do that? Maybe it's just me. But I find oftentimes when I walk into a room or when I'm in a group of people, I, I think, Is there anything that makes me special or makes me have some kind of leg up? We play this point game. Oh, they got that many points for that, I get this many points for this, and it's religion. My um, cousin uh, just got a French bulldog named Frank. Just so cute, just a tiny little French bulldog. And we also, my wife and I, uh, we got a German Shepherd puppy not too long ago, and she's quite a bit bigger than Frank, all right? And we got them together because we thought, oh, they should play together and, uh, you know, get to know each other. And so, you know, our dog Nora is very interested in Frank. She sniffs him and she kind of just gently paws at him. And my wife and I are sitting back, we're thinking, oh, look at her. She's so gentle with him. Wow, what a great dog that we have. And, you know, and I start to think, you know, she is a good dog. I think 
She's not like other dogs, this dog. <laughs> She's the kind of dog who's gentle with puppies. She can read a social situation and know now's not the time to go crazy and try to flip this dog over. No, she's a gentle dog. And you know what I started to think? I started to think, how did she get that way? <laughs> I was like, well, she was raised in my home. <laughs> and you know, we've always cared deeply for her. And maybe it was that she was so nurtured and cared for as a young puppy that she's just Maybe a little bit of us has rubbed off on her, and that's why she's such a good dog. <laughs> and my dog says something about me. Isn't that great? <laughs> we do this, guys. We play this game. At the end of the story, Mrs. Turpin begins to talk with the only, she says, the only other respectable woman in the whole waiting room. And they begin to talk about how grateful they are to have such nice dispositions, and that, you know, some people are just born lazy and mad, but not them. And she says this out loud in a moment of gratitude. She says, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think of who I could have been besides myself and all that I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way that it is. It could have been so different. Oh, thank you, Jesus. She cried aloud. And then this happens. The book struck her directly over her left eye. It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Mary Grace took her book from Wellesley and she threw it at Mrs. Turpin and hit her right in the eye. And she was hit with Grace. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor. Grace struck her. And the girl exclaimed while Mrs. Turpin lay on the floor bleeding out of her eyes. She said, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. <laughs> <laughs> and as Mrs. Turpin is wheeled out of the waiting room delusionally, she begins to ponder the, inc the incident, and she wonders with an enormous amount of emotional stress, how could I both be saved and from hell? What could this mean? And she begins to think to herself, I'm a good woman. I go to church. I've brought my family to church. I read the Bible. I do the right things. I'm even kind to my neighbors, even the annoying ones. How could it be that I'm saved and from hell? And at the end of the story, while she's recovering from this incident, she has a vision, I believe prophetic vision, of what it will be like when people go to heaven. And here's what happens. Next slide. There were, a whole, there were whole companies of white trash and white robes, battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. But bringing up the rear of the procession was a tribe of people she recognized at once as those like herself. Always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense. They alone were on key. Yet, she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. But all she could hear were the voices climbing upward into the starry field, shouting hallelujah. Even their virtues were being burned away. What could that mean? 
Religion repents of its wrongdoing, but it hangs on to its virtue and right doing as a way of saying, see, I'm good. See, I'm in. See, I'm not like them, and so I'm deserving of your kindness, God. Do not be mistaken, that's religion. And Jesus will not play this game because his way is so much better than that. Humans, we're so naturally religious, we'll turn almost anything into it because we think it's a way for us to be secure and for us to move forward in life. And so whether it's where we buy our clothes or where we buy our food, we're like, well, I only wear ethical and I only buy ethical food, and so I'm not like those people who don't. Hmm. Or I, I, I would never live in that neighborhood, it's so uppity. Or I would never live in that neighborhood, it's kind of gross, don't you think? Or, or our behaviors, well, I, I, sorry, I actually don't say those sorts of things, or I don't watch those sorts of things, and so it, it's kind of giving me a leg up. Or even in a city like ours, science and practicality leads many to just go, well, I'm not like those narrow-minded Christians who believe that the Bible is true, jeez. Do not be mistaken, that's religion, and it must go in the church, it cannot stay. It is, all of those are ways of knowing who is good and who is isn't. And Jesus actually paid a price for all of us, and so we no longer get to compare our virtues against anyone else's because he's given us the same identity which is in Christ. It is an equal playing field. And so to destroy this way of thinking, this evil way of thinking in John's disciples, he's like, hey, we're gonna actually need a new wineskin over here because what I'm about to pour out is so good it's gonna blow your wineskin up. (laughs) And he heals. What is the new wine? He heals. He casts out demons. He raises a girl from the dead. He, He makes it so that people can hear again. He blesses people that don't measure up. Gosh. What kind of God does that? And really what he's giving them is a taste of the goodness of the kingdom. Because why? He doesn't need to sit there and argue about, well, we're the kind of guys who don't fast. We're not like you guys. No, no, no. He doesn't need to do that because he knows it's his kindness that will lead people to repentance. It's his goodness poured out that actually makes us change our minds and go in his direction. Can you feel it? He's trying to set you free tonight. He's trying to set you free from the religious spirit. It has to go. He's looking for people who have the ability and the capacity in their lives to stretch and receive the new wine. Can you have it? So how do we make room for the new thing? How do we do that? How do we make room for the new thing that God is doing, not only in our church, but in your lives? I think there's two things that we need to think about, and that's the spirit of God and the blood of Christ. There are two components to the kingdom in the New Testament that wine is a metaphor for, and that's the spirit of God and the blood of Christ. Because the the new covenant is inaugurated by the blood of Christ and is carried on by the spirit, these are incredibly important things for for us to understand this evening. In Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost when the promised spirit comes and people begin to speak in tongues, do you remember what the crowd does? They kind of poke fun at them just like they poke fun at Jesus in here. You notice this, uh, is so funny. Um, it says this in verse 24. He said, go away to the people who are shaking their tambourines and they're, they're really just doing their funeral ceremony. He says, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep, but they laughed at him. Why? Because new wine will make you look foolish. 
And when the Spirit came, <laughs> what did people say? <laughs> look at these guys, they're drunk. And you know what the word, what it actually says, you can look at it in Acts 2 in your Bibles, it says, are they filled with new wine or something? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they were, actually. See, the language describing the Spirit is often liquid. It's pour yourself out. It's overflow. It's be filled with the Spirit. And Ephesians chapter five actually teaches us to drink the Spirit. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. It's not for that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. John Piper says this. This is just awesome. How do you get drunk with wine? You drink it. Lots of it. The wine of Paul's day was so weak, you would have to drink it for long hours to get drunk. So how then shall we get drunk with the Spirit? Drink it. Lots of it. (laughs) We're gonna do that tonight. (laughs) What Jesus is doing is in this text, he's placing a priority on the Spirit and he's saying the Spirit is to lead, to fill you, to make you drunk, and to actually give you enjoyment in life. That's the goal of this new wine. Do you have the room in your life to receive it? And so I think our response to a passage like this must be to value the wine above the wineskin. You value the wineskin, you may miss out on the wine. You value the new wine, you'll never miss out. See, when you value the wine above the wineskin, you will be ready and set and prepared for the new thing because you're more interested in following the lead of the Spirit rather than making and codifying your own way. And this is, what is, this is relationship. This is what was purchased for us on the cross. It's our privilege. Followers of Jesus are to live lives that are constantly changing and adjusting to the new thing. There's a pastor I like who talks about the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit of God descended like a dove onto the shoulder of Jesus. It says the Spirit of God came down onto the shoulder of Jesus and it says this, there it remained. There it remained. And what this pastor says is he likes to imagine that what would it be like if you had a dove on your shoulder all of your life? Every step that you took would be in with, you'd have the dove in mind. You'd, you'd be constantly wondering, can we go here? Is it okay here? No fast movements, why? I wanna stay in step with what the Spirit is up to. I don't know where this, a message like this will hit you and what he's speaking to you. I'm trusting that Holy Spirit is speaking to you powerfully this evening. But this week, as I am constantly curious about where the Spirit wants to take me, he brought me to a passage in Romans 14. Romans 14, 23, and this is what Romans 14, 23 says. Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. <laughs> How's that for an encouraging... Uh, I'm like, thank you, Spirit of God. I love that. I just feel so encouraged. Anything that doesn't come from faith, that's sin. And what, what, what Paul is getting at is he's saying, if there's anything in your life that you're doing on your own because deep down you believe that you know better, that's sin. And it's sin because it's breaking of trust and it's thus breaking of a relationship with Jesus. And this is where it really hits home for me. As many of you guys know, or all of you know, I suppose, right now, um, we are planting a church in Newburgh, and we're looking for a home to live in. We want to buy a home. And uh, there's this crazy long story about this specific home that we're looking at right now. But essentially, um, some people had this dream. They're like, we had this dream that you asked to buy this home, and it's not for sale right now. We actually know where it is. But, you know, in the dream, they said that they wanted to sell you the home. You should do it. So after a while, we're like, okay, well, maybe we should. You know, we want to live in faith. This might be uh, something new that the Lord's doing. Let's do it. 
So we drive up to this house and we <laughs> park across the street and it has like all these no soliciting signs on it. I'm like, ooh, it's not a good sign. Uh, Lord, was that, were those in the dream? Um, and all of a sudden this guy comes walking down the sidewalk towards us and he's kind of like yelling towards us or he's like, hey, roll your window down. So we roll our window down. He's like, hey, you guys gonna buy that house? And he just points at the house. We're like, what? What is it? It's not for, is it for sale? He's like, the lady who, ju- who lives there, she just passed away, the ownership passed to her kids, and they want to sell it. Here's their number, you should give them a call. We're like, <laughs> what? Okay, um, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna call, so I call them up, and uh, sure enough, they want to sell it. So I'm like, oh, this is great. Now, we don't hear from them after that initial contact for like two months, and we're just like, oh, I don't know if this is happening anymore. I, I, we haven't heard from them. Finally, we hear back from them, and they're like, they're playing this kind of game. They're like, hey, there's multiple parties interested. There will be multiple offers. We're gonna sell it before it goes to market. I'm just like, oh, what? We're the only, we got the dream. <laughs> we don't, who are these people? No, 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 you're not a part of God's destiny for my life. I know that. <laughs> And so, you know, I th- I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, here's the deal. It's worst house, best neighborhood, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna offer what nobody else is gonna offer. You know, you got all these investors coming in, trying to buy up these homes for college housing. Boo, we don't want that. We want families to live in this neighborhood. And so we're like, these investors, they're trying to get it cheap. We're gonna offer way more than they think. And so I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this thing that was begun by the Spirit, and I'm gonna do it in my own strength. That's what I'll do. So. <laughs> So I go out to lunch with a friend of mine, and uh, he's a little bit older than me, he's bought multiple houses, and he says, he, I'm telling him about the house, and he goes, you know, I've never purchased a house without asking the Lord for what to offer. And I'm like, you can do that? <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I'm like, you know what? Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. <laughs> Rubber meets the road. Okay, so Lord, what, what should we offer? And the Lord gives me a number, and I have a ton of peace about it, but at the same time I'm going, it's way too low. We're gonna miss out on this, God. No, 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 don't give us that number. We, we, uh, trust me. Okay, I, I don't know if I really needed your help on offering on homes, God, because the thing is, is I know the market, and I know what, and you don't want us to offer that. We're gonna miss out on this thing that we're supposed to have. As if I know better than him. Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. And so for me, what what my wife and I are are working on doing, it is surrender. It is, this house is not ours, Lord, at all. Certainly not ours. And so we're gonna surrender that over to you, and when you do that, gosh, so often surrender just pulls that, it puts that new wineskin in you, and it makes room for God to pour the new wine into And so I'm just like, I'm more interested in your blessing than my ingenuity, so just pour yourself out. Because his way is best. The new wine may make you look foolish. Because the the wisdom of man says, "Uh, what, no, don't offer that, offer this, that doesn't make any sense. But how many of you guys know that the wisdom of God is so much higher? And if you have the mind of Christ, you have access to a sort of wisdom that the rest of the world doesn't have access to. May we live on that. The second metaphor for wine is the blood of Christ. 
When Jesus sits with his disciples and they eat their last meal, there's one thing that he says is the sign of the new covenant and it's wine. And he says, this is my blood for you. And what really breaks the religious spirit in us is the cross. The cross forces us to come to terms with not only what our sin cost him, but the kind of love that he has for us all in the same moment. What kind of God leaves his throne? Not only just to have conversation with humanity, but to die for humanity. You can't find that anywhere else. And what this does is it removes any right for us to hold up our own record of righteousness as a reason for his love. That's what the cross demolishes. His blood is a gift, and it is your job to receive it, not earn it, period. Paul actually went as far as to say, any virtue that I have apart from the blood of Christ is garbage to me. He uses a swear word there, scubalon. It's like basically the S word for us. It's garbage. It's dirty rags compared to what Christ has given me. What we say when we see the cross is we say, I couldn't save myself from wrongdoing. I was a slave to sin. I also couldn't do enough good to be righteous on my own. My virtues must be burned away, in the words of Flannery O'Connor. Guys, that's how it is. It's he fought the battle, and we get to wear the medals. That's what the cross is. What a gift. Who were the ones who, could, who were sitting at that table who could receive the new wine of the covenant? They were the ones who knew they needed it. They didn't have a backup plan. And so tonight what we're gonna do is we've saved communion for this time for us to remember Jesus, what he did and what he gave to us that we might live in the new covenant. And we're gonna take the body, we're gonna take the blood, and we're gonna celebrate what our groom has done to win our hearts. Let's stand together.